look at these scars. My father was a drinker and a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. Mommy gets the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. So, me watching, he takes the knife to her, laughing while he does it. He turns to me and he says, Why so serious? He comes at me with the knife. Why so serious? He sticks the blade in my mouth. Let's put a smile on that face. And... Why so serious? Hello again and welcome to episode 12 of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm still the editor of Film89.co.uk and joining me today at long last all the way from Melbourne, Australia. He's living upside down and nine hours in the future. He's one of the founders of the website. He's a brilliant writer about all things film related and he's here today to talk about a trilogy of films from one of his favourite directors. It is a pleasure to finally be chatting shit with my good friend, Mr Hayden Spirell. Hayden, welcome to the Film 89 podcast. Thanks, Guy. Long time coming. Um, that uh, future boy Joe Gold, is it? It's going to be a, a classic among the Film 89 admin forever. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not It's not going to change. You live in the future. You know, we, we don't understand how that works. Um, like sometimes <laughs> it'll be Tuesday here, it'll be Wednesday with you. And it's just, it's just way beyond our, our, our simple level of understanding. So obviously it's, it's taken ages for us to get you on the podcast, the, the technical things of, um, you know, matching up the difference in time and stuff. And you know, obviously... It's, what's the time here now? 10 o'clock in the morning. What's the time over there with you? Uh, 7 o'clock at night. 7 o'clock at night, yeah. And I suppose being upside down, you you know, you had to nail your computer and your microphone to the desk. And, you know, I, I don't even know how it works. It's just, like I say, way well, beyond my... I'm ha- hanging upside down like that, you could say. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very apt. So <laughs> we, we're here today to talk about, I think, when we when we pitched episodes. Um, obviously, we're coming up now to the, the 10th anniversary of, of The Dark Knight. It, you know, it's it's one of our favorite films. It, it's 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 one of the it's one of the most well regarded. Not even just comic book movies. Now, I think on the IMDb top two hundred and fifty, it's currently sitting at number four and has done for for the longest time. It's you know, it's a film that's, that was lavish with accolades and is just you know, it's going to go down as an all time classic. So you know, we thought we've got the ten year anniversary coming up. We're going to go in a little bit more depth in a, in a further episode about that film on its own. But for this episode today, we've chosen to talk about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Trilogy. So Hayden, just take us through how you got into comics, and in particular your love of DC Comics, and then obviously how things became a lot more personal comic book related with obviously your the release of your own comic book. So I was actually pretty late to comics. Um, I got into them at the age of probably 16, 16, 17. Fittingly, it was probably The Dark Knight Trilogy that steered me into them, that and The Walking Dead TV show. So Batman and The Walking Dead were essentially my uh, my first steps into the world of comics. And as we all know, the world of comics is enormous. and uh, it's, it's just impossible to find your way around it seamlessly. So uh, I took a deep dive into Batman before anything else, explored some of the history, 
read as many of the comics as I could and got a good idea of what was regarded as 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 good comics and what was regarded as not so good comics. How I got into writing comics, I've, I've always been someone who gravitated towards writing, as I'm sure you can uh, relate to a similar degree. Uh, even from a young age, I was writing uh, little short stories based on uh, Dragon Ball Z, I think, was my childhood mm-hmm. passion. And then probably a few years back, I thought, look, I'm just going to have a go at comics and started trying to write scripts, try to see where I could take it. And um, finally, I decided, you know what, I'm going to actually find an artist and put something on paper because I'm no good at drawing. So <laughs> so that's how Chimera came about. And Chimera is a three-issue story. I've done the first issue. It is available as a digital file now. And you can find a link on Twitter um, or Facebook, and I'm sure we'll go through all that later. But it's basically about a girl who has a unique ability and some very powerful people want to exploit that. So I'd say it's light sci-fi, but it, it's it's a lot more personal than that as well. It, it sort of came about as uh, during a period of time where I was working a job that I, that I hated and wasn't in a great frame of mind. So that's sort of where that where that um, grew from. Yeah, I think, you know, when, when you, you go from like we have into some sort of creative thing where you you're actually tackling the love of like we do our love of film and television and and, and comic book movies and, and things like that 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 is completely unrelated to all of our day jobs really um some of which you know are extremely stressful and I, th- I think we've all sort of used this as like an outlet to to do something a little bit creative and certainly for some of us there's, there's a desire for it to ever be you know anything that becomes professional but yeah you know i i, I certainly you know see what you mean especially if, you, if you're in a job that you're not happy with sometimes you just want to sort of just be creative don't you because it gives you some you know a degree of satisfaction wouldn't you say yeah, you spew it out onto the page, and it, yeah, it definitely relieves you to a certain extent. So, so what do you think of how comic books have? There's definitely been, you know, a change in 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 the market for comic book, you know, or comics of late, and I think it's, it's safe to say that the, the rise in popularity of the comic book movies, which I think now it. Obviously, you've had films like the Superman films that started in '78. You had Tim Burton's Batman films in 1989, but this, it's been there was a bit of a hiatus then. Then you had uh, 2000s X Men, then you had Sam Raimi's films, but then the the snowballing wasn't you know it wasn't just this massive explosion. It was quite a, a gradual process into the situation we're in now, where you know it's going to be extremely difficult to, to to count off the tops of our heads how many comic book films we've had certainly in the last ten years. Obviously, this episode is about the ten year anniversary of the the Dark Knight, the second part of the trilogy. But the trilogy itself started in two thousand and five with Christopher Nolan's first film, Batman Begins. You've also got then in 2008, same year as The Dark Knight, you've got the genesis of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But since then, it seems to me, certainly for Marvel comics, they've they've been affected by the popularity of the films where the film continuity seems to be more important now than the comic book continuity. Whereas as much as these films are sort of harking back to ideas from the comics, certainly the, the, you know, the recent um, Avengers Infinity War and the build-up to that, that harks back to Jim Starlin's work where where Thanos was was first introduced what 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 do you gauge this as the the situation with DC comics at the moment in relation to both their comic book output and the way their movies have gone of late with the the DC expanded universe yeah, it's a really good point you make about um, how the film continuity has become 
almost so highly regarded that people are less interested in following the comics when it comes to Marvel, I would say. I'm no expert, but I get the feeling that there is a lot more focus on the films. And as a result, people don't necessarily need to read the comics because there's a film every other year or every other quarter of a year. With DC, I think it's a completely different situation. I think that their comics are going quite well. I'm admittedly not up to date um, on comics at the moment, um, so many hours in the day. But I would say that because, uh, not because the films are suffering, but there isn't a hunger for the DC films the same way there are for the Marvel films because they're just not doing them as well. DC Comics have some incredible creative talent in there at the moment that they're not actually suffering at all in that area. You know, you've got uh, writers like Tom King, um, you've got Scott Snyder, uh, you've got a, uh, a Marvel alumni recently came across. Yeah, Brian, Brian Michael Bandis, who, funny enough, you should say that, you know, my sort of introduction to comic book reading in any sort of in-depth way was probably around about 2004. A, fr- a friend of mine who, who worked in like a, a comic book science fiction merchandise sort of store, he sort of got me into comic books because basically he was getting them from the shop, reading them and then offloading them to me. And and he yep. was like saying, "Look, you 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 have to give these these comics a go." And I said, "You know, I I haven't read comic books since I was a kid. You know, growing up, um, I, you know, I had the original Marvel UK run of the Transformer comics, which you know I I'd I'd get every week and read those. And then I think towards like the tail end of the eighties, then when uh, Tim Burton's Batman film came out, there was this sort of um, bi-weekly collection of DC comics, which I remember getting, which had like." Um, uh, Teen Titans and and I, I vaguely remember you know it had characters like uh, Mandrake and Cyborg were in it and and then obviously the you know the regulars like Superman and Batman but you know that was that was sort of it for me for comic books until then this period in two thousand and four and it was when I was getting into stuff like um, the big overarching Marvel comic series like House of M Civil War Secret Invasion things like that and then that sort of prompted me then to look at some of the other things like my, my experience reading dc comics is nowhere near as much as my experience of reading marvel it was stuff like batman stories like the dark knight returns hash um things like that which i, I actually read in 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 sort of collected graphic novel form but yeah, i certainly think what you say is right dc comics are in a better position i think now than marvel comics you know i don't know what the the, the sales figures are but i do find that certainly a lot of people i know that used to read comics are now doing it in a digital form just because of convenience really certainly i've never been someone who's bought comic books as such i've actually bought graphic novels you know i've waited for a series to to, to finish this run you know i'll buy a trade paperback and read that because it's just far better value for money and I just personally find the comic books are just far too slight. You get far too little at one time. Whereas, you know, you buy a couple of collected graphic novels in one go and then you've got a decent amount of reading material to last you a couple of days. The, you know, the way the films have gone, it's, you know, we're not going to go too much into the, you know, giving a critique of, of what DC have done right and more predominantly what they've done wrong with the DCEU. Obviously, this is not about that. And certainly these films don't form part of Warner Brothers' DCEU. They're, you know, they're, they're combined expanded universe where they brought all these characters together. What was your first experience then of Christopher Nolan as a director? You know, Was it these films? And if so, when did you see them? And, and what was the impact that they left on you? It was these films. In fact, it was The Dark Knight. And I actually saw The Dark Knight before I ever saw Batman Begins. I was probably, must have been about 15 when The Dark Knight came out. Yeah, that was that was two thousand five. Um, oh, sorry, two thousand eight. When yeah, when when the Dark Knight came out, the first one came out two thousand and five. So yeah, you, I think yeah, you, you would have been like early to mid teens then. Yeah, so um, so the Dark Knight had 
I didn't I don't think I even knew that Batman Begins existed. I was I was as late to um to film as I was to comics in terms of really digesting them at such a heavy rate. So I saw The Dark Knight and in fact the early scene uh during the Joker's heist when the um the banker comes out with a shotgun. I forget the actor's name. Uh, um, William William Fechner or Fechner. When I saw that, I at first I thought that's Bruce Wayne. I hadn't seen yeah. any trailers. I had no knowledge. I was completely green to it all. So I thought he was Bruce Wayne. He came out, he died. And obviously that's when I figured out that he wasn't Bruce Wayne. But The Dark Knight is a film I've seen more than any other film, I reckon. It just left such a huge mark on me. I saw it twice in the theater. The second time I saw it, I was actually bored by it, which probably reflects my age and state of mind at the time yeah. uh, in terms of film. But I, I can come back to it over and over again i'll never never get bored of it it can come on the tv halfway through and i'll i'll watch it through to the end yeah you know it's, it's certainly one of those films that it's definitely not for kids it, you know it's no for, you know you you can you can you know i could i could sit down now my my seven-year-old son i i if i have i've shown him the original christopher reeve superman films he's seen uh, most of the of the marvel cinematic universe films he is certainly not ready uh, for these films yet just because, like you know, I think they they're not aimed at children. They're, they're very serious in tone, and I think you know, as we'll come on to now, that's one of the best things that Nolan did at this point in time, where you know, in two thousand and five, you had looking back at what comic book films we had, there was always a sort of borderline camp humorous element of films like the the Christopher Reeve Superman films. Certainly, it it started to ramp up the you know the the, the almost silly humor in in the third film, which got way out of hand. Then you've got you know the, even the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, which you know they, they, there's always a, a lightness to them, even though they have got quite dark elements. And you know certainly the way Willem Dafoe you know p- portrays his character, but they're not something I would have any reservations about showing my my seven-year-old son. And in fact, you know he he has seen most of them. Batman Begins, it's certainly not aimed at children. The Dark Knight is you know quite aptly a very dark film. It's got some you know certainly seeing later on as we'll come to. Uh, two-face after his transformation you know i I will not be showing my seven-year-old that until he is you know at least you know 10 or 11 maybe maybe older and yeah you know look looking back at the age you were when you first saw this film you know i can imagine that being like 15 it's it's going to be you know you're at that strange sort of age where you know i tried to think what sort of films i was into at 15 and i certainly wasn't in any way you know i i loved film but i would never call myself a cinephile because i just think i was finding my way in my sort of exploration of films you know, I, I sort of liked you know hard action films. I, I definitely had something in my mind that I knew what a quality film was. Maybe I just didn't know why. But you know, I, I can't imagine why it must have been like at that age for you to see this film and this to be your introduction into comic book movies. Because you know, I think it's safe to say if you are going to rank the Batman films and the DC films, no one I think is going to argue that this is literally as as good as it gets, both in terms of comic book films and and certainly films in general. This is you know the that second film is just a remarkable film. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to sit there at your age with no experience of comic book films and, and to see this. Yeah. And the, the trilogy as a whole, there's often a debate about, you know, people separate comic book movies from other movies, um, maybe in the same way that they separate romantic comedies mm. to other movies. And I think that 
it's sort of a murky area you get into when you start to split them off because i mean for example i read an interview with christopher nolan and in that interview he he quotes that they tried not to view it as a superhero movie or not as a comic book movie um when it came to uh, i think that one was for the dark knight that he made that comment on and i think that it borders on pretentious in a way because a superhero movie can be dark or it can be light or it can be funny I don't think it makes it any less of a superhero movie the same way that, you know, Die Hard is an action movie that's very gritty and that has comedic elements. So Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are very heavily influenced by um, the Long Halloween comic. I don't know if you've read that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite a while ago, my brother-in-law's got the, um, he's, he's got the hardback version. And yeah, I, I probably read that around about the time this film came out or maybe, maybe a year later. Yeah and in the in an interview nolan said that the long halloween is more than a comic book it's an epic tragedy yeah that's fine that it's an epic tragedy and it's probably my favorite comic of all time but it's still a comic book and i don't think that you can devalue comics by saying that they they're lesser than some of these other things i think the same argument can be made for uh superhero comics um uh, sorry superhero films thor ragnarok is a great comedy regardless of the fact that it's a superhero movie regardless of the fact that it's a marvel film I just don't think we're going to get away from the fact that comic book movies are going to be labelled as a, as a genre in and of themselves. You know, like you say, films like Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok is part comedy. You could argue that it's mostly comedy. But then, you know, I'd say films like Ant-Man is, is sort of like a comedy heist film. You know, as much yeah. as there's, you know, there are, there are semi-serious moments in it, you know, things with, you know, the relationship with his daughter, you know, elements like that, which sort of ground it a little bit more. That is a completely different film to something like, say, Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is more like a, a 70s espionage thriller. Yet, from an outsider's point of view or someone who, who sort of isn't into those films as much, they're just going to say, yeah, it's a comic book movie. And, you know, for people who says that all of these films are the same, for someone to say that all comic book movies are the same, which, I, I you know, I think there is an element of snobbery about it, I, I just don't agree with it at all. Because if you look at films, even just highlighting some of the, you know, the DC films... Is the Dark Knight in any way comparable to something like the Green Lantern film, the you know the Ryan Reynolds film? No, no. And you know the characters exist in the same universe, but you know they're completely different films. Granted, there's no continuity between those two films made by you know different directors, not part of like an overarching series like the DCEU. But yeah, for you know for for Ledger to, yeah, yeah, I think he did come at it with a bit of an elitist attitude that he was going to take the comic book movie idea, he was going to put a completely serious spin on it. And as much as yet, yeah, I think there could have been an element of pretension there. I certainly think it's what you know that the comic book movie genre needed at the time. And I think if he hadn't gone, you know, with that approach, I don't think these films would have stood out. And and I do think they benefit from from being for once having a completely serious take on superhero films. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, Nolan himself dubs it as a kind of cinematic reality, which is. I think his way of ducking around the fact that it's realistic, but it has so many unrealistic elements. Yeah, it it is set in sort of like this, this this realistic world where, I think, no Nolan is setting ground rules. You know, he he's saying that you know characters like Two Faces will come to. If you look at Tommy Lee Jones's um, version of Two Face in in Batman Forever, you know he just looks ludicrous. He's, he's got like a load of like purple gloop on one side of his face 
and he does literally look like he was pulled off the pages of not and not even a, a well-drawn DC comic. Whereas you know the version that Nolan presents us with in the Dark Knight is terrifying. You know the, the guy's had all, all the flesh burnt off his face, and you know as much as I know, there's versions of his character in the books that do kind of resemble that. Well, you know when when I first saw that, it, you know, and I think I was already sold way before then on the film. But I thought, holy shit, this is taking things into a completely new level of, of realism that, that, you know, it borders on horror. You know, there, there's this overall tone in The Dark Knight. I, I think Neil Gaskin, you know, I, I saw The Dark Knight with Neil. Um, I, I think I went to see it twice. I can't remember if it was the first or second time that I actually saw it with Neil. But like early on, he, he was sort of turning to me and saying, this is like a comic book uh, movie, but it's also trying to be like a, a crime drama, like something like Heat. The, you know the Michael Mann yeah. film, and obviously yeah. Nolan's later said that Michael Mann's Heat was a was a huge influence on this film. The whole opening scene, the bank robbery prologue, is an homage to Heat. It, it's so similar to it, but at the same time, because it exists in this slightly more you know fantasy world of comic book films, at no point do you think he's shamelessly ripping it off. Because if anything, it's refreshing because it's sort of blending this comic book world with the real world that we've seen in films like Heat. And I think that's one of the things he does so well. You know, we'll start on, on, on the first film. Obviously, you saw The Dark Knight first. How long after you saw The Dark Knight then did you, did you seek out and explore Batman Begins? Honestly, I can't even remember when I first saw Batman Begins. It, I would say it's, it was at least a couple years later, but well before The Dark Knight Rises came out. And it, it's interesting because Batman Begins is highly lauded, and I think that it, its reputation actually grows with time i think a lot of people some people or other these days are saying that it's better than the dark knight i think i've heard that in mm. some circles and i disagree and i'm not sure whether i came to batman begins late and that's why i don't consider it at the same level but i would almost say that of the three films batman begins comes third to me not because i think it's not a good movie i i'd happily watch it any time of the week there's something about it and i think it's it's a little bit more, I don't want to say generic, but it's quite predictable in a sense. Um, the first hour of the movie is incredible. It's yeah, probably my favorite superhero film for half the movie. Yeah. Um, the second half of the movie is where I, I lose a little bit of my attention. I've, I've gone back and forth on Batman Begins. Now, I, I can only go now on my current opinion of the film. Obviously, in preparation for this, I've rewatched the, the the trilogy, and as you know, Hayden, and uh, and as you and I, and uh, Neil Gaskin, and, and you know, our, our other friends from Film Eighty Nine and Beyond, we we've had endless discussions about comic book films, and you you know, I've been very critical of Christopher Nolan's films uh, as much as much as I love some of his films, he's frustrated me in certain areas, which we'll come to. Batman Begins is a film that I felt like you, that, that first half where we first meet Bruce Wayne, as much as, you know, we've seen the origin of Bruce Wayne how many times now? Uh, we, we, we've seen in, in the, you know, the Tim Burton films and we've seen it since then in, uh, you know, Batman versus Superman. You know, we keep seeing these, these different sort of versions of his origin story, but seeing it as it was portrayed in Batman Begins with him basically going off the grid for I think is it five years seven years something like that yep seven you know, he, years, d- he just goes off and he lives this life where you know he's even dabbling in crime as we see and I think that first half of that film if I'd say beyond that 
you know, we, we don't see him as Batman for I think is it an hour into the film or is it forty five minutes into the at film? Least? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, don't, we don't see him as Batman. Rewatching it recently, it it's easily the most I've enjoyed the film. I, you know, I, I saw it back in two thousand and five in the cinema. I thought it was absolutely amazing. But there was, I think it was the tail end of the film where we see him in that um, what's the rundown section of the city? I, I can't for the life of it. The the narrows. The narrows, yeah. Now the the only bit that kind of let me down is he'd gone to so much trouble to set up this pristine-looking, realistic world. You know, you've got all of those bits set in Tibet or wherever they are, which is you know filmed on location. Then you've got him filming Chicago as a stand-in for Gotham. Again, slightly augmented with a bit of CGI for things like the Wayne building and the big train that runs through the city. But then when it got to the Narrows at the end, a lot of that looked quite artificial. And, if it, and it also had a bit of a, a sort of semi-Gothic look that made me sort of hark back a little back bit too much to the Tim Burton Batman films and I felt he was sort of doing himself a bit of a disservice because he'd done such a bold effort and a sterling effort of making these films grounded in this as you say this sort of pocket reality as it were that's not too far from our own and yeah that little that that last act on the train with the ridiculous thing of the you know the microwave emitter that quite magically it only evaporates the water in nearby pipes and stuff doesn't do anything to the humans which just stood right next to it now that's me being picky but at the same time this is something which i find becomes a problem in in nolan's later films and certainly within this trilogy as well he, he'll set up a very specific reality then he'll throw in something that's either completely illogical or very poorly thought out and that was the only element of the film i didn't like was that last act other than that i absolutely loved it i thought liam neeson was fantastic as raz al ghul i didn't feel too much it, it was a you know it was a, it was a a massive rug pull when we find out that no he's not Raz al Ghul's assistant he's actually the main bad guy I thought Alfred was fantastic in it Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox was brilliant one thing people have had criticism with is is with Katie Holmes who plays Rachel Dawes his love interest I haven't got a particular problem with her um, you know for whatever reason she, she was switched out in the in the, the second film for Maggie Gyllenhaal but you know I, I think the, the casting is superb Gary Oldman is fantastic as Jim Gordon uh, Ken Watanabe, who obviously pops up as uh, you know the, the the actual fake Raz Al Ghul, I think it's a great cast, and I, I think people who say that it's the best of the trilogy, I think there's an argument that this is the best Batman film from the point of view of Batman is the main character. Obviously, in the second film, I think in a way his performance is overshadowed by Heath Ledger's amazing performance as the Joker, and then I think a lot of people have got some issue with the fact that. He's once again removed from Gotham in the third film. And, you know, again, it, it, there's a lot more focus on the bad guys in the second and third films. Would you agree? Yeah, but I think The Dark Knight in particular really benefits from that because Batman is very passive for the entire film. And I think that's the point. The Joker is the one, you know, acting out. He's, he's making everything happen. The Batman is just picking up the pieces. And I think that goes along with the fact that he's almost early in the film taking... Uh, he's underrating the Joker because, you know, he says to Gordon, he's just one man, we can figure it out. We want to go after the mob for now. So I think that he almost digs a hole there because he doesn't actually go after the main threat because he doesn't think he's a threat at all. To go back to, go back to Batman Begins, though, I actually really enjoy the aesthetic of that final act. My problem is more to do with the script. So there are, um, I think there are exposition issues, um, particularly when you think about the the workers at the the water control room they show up for a few scenes in that final act just to spew out some facts about how the train lines are gonna yeah um, hit the center of the city now i do you i've got no argument with you there that 
that whole last act, yeah, it, it, it's very generic. And it, it's basically giving Batman, who obviously is just finding his feet in the role, it's giving him something to face off against. You know, they mm. they they bust all of the the the, the, the prisoners out of is it Blackgate, the the name of the prison. Yeah, it, it does all feel a little bit generic, and especially obviously from your point of view, the fact that you've seen the second film first, it, it's it's like you know when I first saw Aliens before seeing Alien. Obviously, the one film is is extremely like gung ho and action packed. Then going back and watching the first film, which is has got a completely different sort of pace and feel to it. You know, I'm going back expecting more gung ho action. I'm not getting that, and I think it took me a long time to adjust my sort of view on Alien, which I now, you know, it could be argued I hold it in a certainly as high regard as the second film, if not higher. And I think, yeah, maybe, maybe for you, it's going to take a bit more time to appreciate the first film, but I can't argue with you there. The, there is a generic feel to the last act, which I think lets a film down. But I think what you've got to do is you've got to look overall of the tone of that film set, and I think it perfectly captured this this far more gritty real world version of what would you know because if you look at the concept of batman it's pretty ridiculous it's a guy that dresses up as a flying mouse and you know yeah. we, we've seen that you know the, the the most camp extremes of, of batman in in the you know the 60s batman series and then in the tim burton films which just became increasingly bizarre and you know if you look at something like something like batman and robin it, it, it is a, it was a full on comedy I would the, say those those second two in the 90s are unwatchable or you, you could argue that they you know can you imagine now if we all got together with a couple of beers and put Batman and Robin <laughs> on maybe to record a drunken audio commentary it was, it's going to be it's going to be entertaining I, yeah. I would never even for a minute say that they're good films I've got a very probably controversial you know, opinion on the Tim Burton films in general I'm not a fan of them I've, I've rewatched the first one maybe about two years ago, and found that it just, for me, certainly doesn't hold up. And I was, you know, I was there, ground zero in 1989. I, I remember when, the, you know, this, the, the Batman craze hit full on. You know, you, you've seen it yourself since. Obviously, you grew up in the sort of Jurassic Park era. And again, you know, there was this thing that, you know, they say Jaws was the first summer blockbuster. And, you know, as I spoke to Mark O'Connell recently on the episode about his book, which focuses on that very specific blockbuster era, as much as that, that sort of tails off um, in the period he covers in you know from 1984 and a sort of new style of film sort of tends to bleed in with these more um sort of um corporate greed obsessed 80s films which you know it even affected mainstream entertainment i think then when, when films in 1989 when you had like like sort of the, the double whammy of indiana jones and the last crusade which sort of put things back towards that sort of heady summer blockbuster i think burton's batman was another film that hark back to you know the Superman films where sorry the, um, hark back to the Star Wars films where merchandise and everything was brought together in this huge summer event I remember being just so excited about seeing the film and then I think I went to see it two or three times which for me you know being the age I was back in 1989 I was probably about 11 or 12 you know a trip to the cinema it, it wasn't the thing that it is now you know I've got a local cinema that's literally a five minute drive down from where I live whereas back then I would have to travel maybe 10 or 12 miles back at that age probably you know with my mum maybe in 1989 going to the cinema to see that film two or three times was just something unheard of but I was so completely blown away by it you would think that maybe nostalgia would play in, you know a part in it I'd go back and watch it now and just love it just like I did as a child but I don't you know Batman Returns I know that film is held in extremely high regard I personally find that just as unwatchable as Batman and Robin and uh, the previous one Batman Forever I'm on the other side of the fence with that I 
I really enjoy the Burton films. In fact, I wish that he got to make a third one. And I think I'm in many ways attracted to that gothic style that Burton went for. I, I just love looking at those films. So I think I can forgive them some of their, their narrative issues. And you look at Batman Returns, you can't really even describe the plot line because there isn't much of one. But I enjoyed the look and I enjoyed the characters in that film. I love Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman in that movie it's funny you mentioned the uh the early blockbusters um like your jaws and you know your star wars and all that because i would say that the dark knight trilogy is as close to close an example of that for my age demographic as that is for you which is actually kind of a shame because it it, it means that there's not really any anything original and groundbreaking that has captured the world the same way that a lot of those films like et did I, you know i think obviously you've when we did the spielberg episode and you were given your rundown of your, your, your five favourite Spielberg films, didn't you pick Jurassic Park as your favourite? Yeah. Now at the time I thought, yeah, okay, Hayden's a different generation to me, he's quite a bit younger, and yeah, you know, Jurassic Park for him is going to be the film that, you know, is for him the equivalent as to what Jaws was for me. A few weeks ago then, just in preparation for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I was going to take my, my two boys to see, we sat down as a family and watched Jurassic Park. And I can honestly say now that film is quite capable of standing head and shoulders alongside the films that I hold in similar regard, like Raiders of the Last Ark, like Jaws, and like E.T. It's an incredible film, and you know, as I discussed with James Hancock on you know the Wrong Wheel episode that dropped today about the the Indiana Jones films, Jurassic Park I think is still part of that era of Spielberg films which had that magic to them, and. It, you know, if for you Jurassic Park is like what Star Wars was for me, then I think you are just as lucky as us because Jurassic Park I think is an incredible film. Not even just from a technical point of view. I, I listened to the uh, John Williams's score the other day. It's just phenomenal. And you know, for people who say that he peaked with films like Jaws and E.T., yes, there is an argument for that. But he has still been capable of great films since then. You know, don't go thinking that just because these films of your generation. Uh, are possibly seen in a lesser light than films from my generation. There's there's a strong argument that films like The Dark Knight are as good as films which I hold in in you know, possibly higher degree of reverie, like Raiders of the Last Ark, and you know for for different sort of reasons. But you know it's certainly a generational thing. But I've, I've you know having watched them recently, I, I was initially very impressed with the third film, as we'll come to. It was actually Neil Gaskin who pulled me aside and sort of gave me a bit of a drubbing down and said, "Look, yeah, I know you enjoyed it." I know you like the happy ending. And then what he he did sort of like a character assassination of the film. He went through it. He highlighted all of these things where the plot sort of becomes a bit ludicrous. And then for the longest time, I, I was like, yeah, it you know it's actually frustratingly annoying how much he sort you know Nolan drops the ball with the plot. And whilst I still think that is the case, having recently watched it again, it, I, I enjoyed it more than I ever have. In fact, I enjoyed the whole trilogy more than I ever have. A lot of the things that you, you, you know, you and me have had, we've had lengthy discussions about our problems with, or about my problems with Christopher Nolan. The director. <laughs> is, is he your favorite director? Is it safe to say? Probably tempered a bit on that. Yeah, but he's you. Know, I would. He, he's. I, I would not say that the films which Steven Spielberg has released in, say, the last fifteen years, are ever going to be in anywhere near as impactful upon you, and nor should they be, as what. You know the early Spielberg films were on me because I just don't think they're they're as special as as the films he was making back then. But if you look at the films of Nolan, I certainly think maybe not so much his last few films. <clears> although I know you're a huge fan of films like Interstellar, 
I can fully understand why you hold Nolan in such high regard. You know, his, his films look incredible. I think it's safe to say that not one of his films has, has looked anything other than a work of art. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think his films, there's this anticipation that, that, that comes with a new Christopher Nolan film. The same way that I hope that develops for someone like Denis Villeneuve, who I've come to hold in the same if not higher regard um with arrival in blade runner 2049 and i think that for him for nolan it's given him a lot of uh creative freedom i read a comment somewhere that uh suggested that he was actually he, he did the dark knight rises so that he could do interstellar really yeah i mean it, it was a throwaway comment so it, i highly doubt its validity however it's food for thought because the dark knight rises does feel in terms of the the storyline a little bit piecemeal the the bomb threatening the destruction of the mm. city it's a little it's a little overdone um which is completely contradictory to the dark knight which just feels so inventive yeah yeah i i agree um you know t- to list of all, all of that film's faults with the plot it's going to be counterproductive to what this episode is about which is actually celebrating the films um, you know, yeah. I, you, you know, I've posted several times on the WhatsApp group, which we you know we chat on on a on a on an almost daily basis. That any time that the you know in the past where the Dark Knight Rises has come up and there's been any sort of argument as to whether or not it's a good film, I've always posted the the, the Honest Trailers YouTube video, which just sort of completely tears the film apart. Now, mm. Honest Trailers have got uh, quite a knack, and I know they're not to everyone's liking of, of finding fault with every film. And sometimes you almost dare to, you know, to hit that play button and see them tear apart a film that you might love. And whilst a lot of the time, like they even, you know, they did one on RoboCop, and I think pretty much at the end they were like, "Oh shit, who are we kidding? This is a fucking awesome film." So they're even yeah. making fun of themselves sometimes. They know that they're nitpicking films, but when when they took apart piece by piece some of the more ludicrous elements of The Dark Knight Rises, yeah, it did sort of temper my my sort of initial liking of the film I've got to say though having sat down and watched these three films back to back now i don't know if for me it's my favorite superhero trilogy you know there, there is one other superhero trilogy which i'm, which I'm not going to mention it's more of a recent one that from a personal point of view means a little bit more to me but i'm not going to deny for a second that, that that these are just sorry i think we both know which trilogy that is <laughs> i'm not going to yeah i'm not going to mention the captain america trilogy um, i'm not going to you know i'm not going to go into you know the why I, I potentially love that trilogy more obviously it's no secret i'm a massive marvel fan my first comic book love uh, from, certainly from a film point of view was dc you know i, I love the yeah. christopher reeve superman films i even love the third one you know a ludicrous comedy where richard pryor was put front and center you know how the hell that film ever came into being i don't know it was definitely the fact that richard pryor at the time was a massive thing you know i i love 60s batman the tv show which i, I don't think you've seen is that right no i haven't i've seen the recent animated movies but otherwise no it's like i don't even know where you would begin um being where we are now at this point in time how you would approach that series it's so over the top and ludicrous but as you know both myself neil gaskin and, and and richie roberts we're all massive comic book movie fans but we all grew up on that show it is nothing like any of the batman comics you would have ever uh, read it is pure ridiculous over-the-top entertainment and, and as i think we mentioned in a discussion on the group recently if you go back and you look on imdb some of the massive stars at the time that turned up in that show this was like a saturday morning camp ridiculous over-the-top tv serial 
but stars were falling over themselves to, to, to show up and have little cameos in this show. I don't think you can I don't think you can understate how big a thing this was at the time. You know, even at its its own movie, which is basically just like, you know, a, an extended two hour episode put up on the big screen. For me, I've got I have got a huge love of DC, far more than, you know, people might think if they look at some of my writing and the things I've said on the podcast. Yes, I've been very critical of the DCEU. The, the second part of this celebration of these films is going to be myself and Neil Gaskin. We're going to do an audio commentary on The Dark Knight, something we've wanted to do for a long time. And after Steve Amos and I did our first commentary on Casablanca, I think The Dark Knight, I think it's our second most requested audio commentary. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it, it's just a film <laughs> that people, I think, are endlessly fascinated with. Like I said to you and, and the rest of the guys, when I re rewatched this trilogy recently, I, I, I said, my God, that's the most I've enjoyed these films, which I think that shows that they're, they're going to have a timeless quality to them. And I, I, I actually think they're going to get better with age. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Superman, and particularly the Donner Superman, because Nolan was actually heavily influenced by Richard Donner's um, ability to build a really impressive cast um, and that sort of inspired him to go and say I'm gonna fill this uh, Batman Begins with as many stars as I can who can not stars but talented actors who can really add value to the film and so you get Michael Caine you get Morgan Freeman you get mm. Christian Bale it's it's an incredible cast I agree you know I agree and like I say I've got no problem with Katie Holmes as, as Rachel Dawes I don't know what what really happened behind the scenes there and why she was swapped out I believe that she. Um, I believe that she just couldn't. She had scheduling conflict. I, yeah. as far as I know, she was offered the part and she couldn't take it. Yeah, and you, you know, you've got Cillian Murphy as um, the the scarecrow, Jonathan Crane. I think he's incredibly creepy. Yeah, and he actually um, auditioned to play Bruce Wayne Batman. He just impressed them so much that they had to find a spot for him. Yeah, you know, Tom Wilkinson, a, you know, a, a famous Brit actor, turns up as Carmine Falcone, the big uh, mob boss here. And like every time I you know, if if there's a long period between me watching Batman Begins, um, I'll, I'll sit down and watch it, and for whatever reason, I'll always forget that Rutger Hauer is in the film. You know, yeah, yeah, he's again with like an extremely sort of um, prominent actor from my childhood, starring in like some of my favorite films like The Hitcher and Blade Runner. And you know, he he turned up in in two comic book uh, movies from in two thousand and five that I I just think are two of the best examples of the genre you'll ever see. Both you know, which is Batman Begins and Sin City which he's also in yeah and you know there's just like you say everyone down to even like the little bit part players everyone's on form that the film looks on the whole incredible i know my personal issues with the narrows at the end are down to just personal taste and obviously you 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 obviously gravitate more towards that sort of gothic look you know wally fister who has been you know the, the long-standing cinematographer that's worked with nolan he's certainly got an eye for just you you could you could pause i suppose any frame of of, of all three of these films and you could just put them up as a poster they you know they are works of art and especially in the second and third films where nolan shot in imax which was quite famously at the time you know he was like the main one to adopt the format you james cameron you know with, with avatar pushed 3d you know to the forefront as a technology which ultimately it looks like hasn't caught on like it like it you know like he, he would have wanted but i think it's safe to say that christopher nolan is probably the strongest advocate for, for imax and you know, I think at the time, in 2008, The Dark Knight was the first film to embrace IMAX like it did. Granted, I think there's only about 20, maybe 30 minutes of IMAX footage in there. But at the time, I think those IMAX rigs were something like $300,000 a piece. I think there were only like 16 of them in the world. And actually, during the course of shooting the film, he actually destroyed one in the um, the underground truck chase. Yes, and they're enormous. They look like 
hell to navigate on the set. Yeah, and and, and apparently they, they're actually quite noisy. So anytime you've got an IMAX scene where characters are actually close in frame and, and, and speaking lines of dialogue, apparently, you as much as most films these days are subject of ADR, additional dialogue recording, when an IMAX camera's on set, certainly back in 2008, I'm not sure if they've been streamlined now. I would imagine they would have. But, you know, they, they make a hell of a lot of noise. They, they're very cumbersome to use. I, I never saw The Dark Knight in IMAX in the cinema. Um, IMAX cinemas, unfortunately, you know, 10 years ago weren't as popular as they are now. Now I can pretty much see anything in IMAX in my local cinema. But when I first saw it on Blu-ray and that 2.39 to 1 aspect ratio opens up to, you know, 1.78 to 1, and like the level of detail was staggering. It just blew me away. And I think Wally Pfister, you know, as, as much as I, you know, I'm not going to go into the reasons why I'm not a fan of Interstellar, there's no doubting, you know, at all that, that that film as well looks incredible. Inception also looks incredible. And, you know, I think Nolan has lensed, you know, obviously, you know, with Wally Pfister as his DP, he's created some of the most incredible looking films, I think, of the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, and even Dunkirk, which I know you have um, a lot of issues it, with. Well, and I don't yeah, there's... Again, I don't want to go into this too much. We did discuss it on, I think, the second episode of the podcast. It, it looks remarkable, doesn't it? It's a beautiful-looking film, and it's you have issues with the soundtrack. Um, yeah. And I like it to an extent. I completely understand where you're coming from. But I think on that topic, Hans Zimmer in the Dark Knight trilogy really drives so much of these films. I think that they're soundtracks that I listen to over and over and over again for years after those films came out yeah i i've got on my um on my ipod i've got a load of um, different film scores i you know i've got the complete soundtrack of the dark knight you know, the, the batman begins soundtrack is great it introduces the you know the batman theme that plays throughout uh, you know the three films there but the dark knight you know that that joker theme that sort of those tight strings that it's just a discordant discomforting sort of tone that builds up every time the character comes on screen and it's not music that you would just sit down and listen to to relax but when it's put in the context of a film i don't think there's any piece of music aside from things like you know the, the famous jaws theme and you know obviously um bernard herman's you know music from films like taxi driver and psycho you know i, I certainly think it's up there with one of the greatest film scores ever made yeah it's the way that film the dark knight opens with that soundtrack just as it's panning in on the building is just unsettling as you said and I, th- I saw a comment on twitter from someone recently and they actually said that uh the end credits are when composers these days get to really you know stretch their limbs and i think that that is so true here you know you at the end of each of these films you get the title yeah. seat the title comes up at the end not the beginning and zimmer's music just just pounds in and it, it's just beautiful to listen to yeah i think that that comment was made by um Char- charlie brigden he's he's a fellow welshman and you know he, he's been on the wrong real podcast in the past talking film scores and you know he knows his film music like like very few other people and yeah i think it was him that made that comment about the fact that these end credit suites sort of give the composer an opportunity just to put in one place and time you know their entire musical ideas for those films and yep. you know i i can as much as the tim burton batman films are films i don't like anymore i, I can still just flick a switch in my head and that you know, Danny Elfman's Batman music is there. It's it, it left its mark. Certainly the same goes for Hans Zimmer's score here. Hans Zimmer, for me, is a very frustrating composer. He is, for me, alongside films like this and films like his score for Inception and Terence Malick's The, the Thin Red Line and, and a few others, he's created film scores which I would put easily put in my top 10 film scores of all time. 
Then, when he does things like Pirates of the Caribbean and what I call his more Jerry Bruckheimer sort of scores, I think he does become extremely generic. You know, I think that, you know, that sort of bombastic music that I think sometimes he falls back on a bit, then, you know, it, it sort of takes away from his more creative use of, like you say, that, you know, that opening. You know, when, when The Dark Knight starts, and, you know, it's going to be far more easier to convey this when Neil and I sit down and do the audio commentary, but there's like a sort of silence with a, a sort of like distant beat of, of drums as the, the, it's like a blue flame logo that pops up at the beginning of the film, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, the way that that sort of is it, so subtle, and the the music that plays across the the DC logos, and you know all the production logos, and then you've got that big IMAX image burst on screen of those buildings, and then you've got those strings which are building and building and building in the background. It's phenomenal. Maybe I'm not the best at, at you know describing film music, but hats off to the guy. He, as much as I'm quite critical of his work sometimes, and I did not like the way he used the score in in Dunkirk. I think he overused this idea of constantly building to a crescendo. By the time he'd done it four or five times, I was like, oh, Hans, yeah, I understand it now. You're building to a tense moment, but there's no payoff really for it. And I think you're just overdoing it. I haven't got the same criticism for these films. And I would say, yeah, hands down, some of the, the greatest film scores I've ever heard. Agreed. I can totally understand where you come from in terms of Dunkirk. And when I think back on it, um, and even... When I've listened to it on my own, it, it just doesn't have nearly the same impact that other film scores have when listening on their own. And I know that's not the point. The point is that they're there to be heard with the movie. But it's it's almost a bonus when some of these soundtracks are so so good that you can um, chuck them on when you're at home doing the chores. Yeah, and I think it helps as well. Like when I re- uh, listened um, earlier this week to the Jurassic Park soundtrack, and it's just taking me back to moments in the film, and I'm almost rewatching the film in my head. Like moments like when Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler first, uh, you know, are shown the park by John Hammond, and you you've got that incredible piece of music where they see the brachiosaur. I tried to think how old I was when I first saw Jurassic Park, probably in my late teens, so maybe a similar age that you were when you first saw The Dark Knight. Even then, possibly at a time in my life where I was edging more towards cynicism and probably thought I knew it all and whatever, that just took me back to being <laughs> a child and just this complete sense of awe and wonderment. And I can't listen now to John Williams's score from that film without just having, you know, you know, just like on the, the hairs on the back of your neck just go up. And it's, it's the same with, the, you know, the opening prologue to The Dark Knight. It, it's just mesmerising music. You cannot listen to it without then also having the associated images in your head of the film. And I think that, like you say, film scores are not made to be played on their own. But when they are played and they take you back to that film and make you so sort of... You know, recall vividly you know the, the moments in that film i think that's where a score has done its job yeah exactly so you know what, one of the things that you know especially on the rewatch of batman begins i like how he approaches this thing of right i need to become you know a, a, a champion for justice in this corrupt city and it's the way then that he it's not just i tell you what i'll be a bat but it's already set up earlier on in the film with his fear of bats raz al ghul shows him that fear can be used as, as a weapon and, and deception can be used as a weapon uh, and theatricality all of these things which also then rear their heads in the third film with lines which are spoken by Bane and I think there's just a great through line throughout and at no point do I find his transition from this sort of lost character of Bruce Wayne into Batman I don't find it jarring I think it's done extremely well I love all of the scenes with Lucius Fox where he's sort of, yeah, you know, we've got all this R&D technology. It's basically just gathering dust. It's yours to do with as you please. 
Because ultimately, I think what a, a lot of the iterations of Batman sort of pushed aside in favour of the Batman character is the fact that Bruce Wayne is also a very important character. And the good thing that this film does is it's got a good balance between Bruce Wayne and Batman, probably better than any other film, wouldn't you say? I'd agree. I think it's because the script gives so much validity to Bruce Wayne's journey that we're, we're in it. By the time he's climbing that mountain, um, we're completely invested in his mission even if he doesn't quite know what the mission is at that point it sort of builds you, you know you don't see batman for an hour as we said earlier and even when you do see it that, that whole sequence at the shipping yard it resembles a horror movie more so than a than a superhero movie or an action movie you barely see batman and he's just taking out these thugs unfortunately i think that's actually the best example of that kind of fight choreography in this film because i find that later on a lot of it's almost incomprehensible yeah, in that film, I agree. It's it's far too close up. His style of fighting does change between the first and the second films. Whether that is down to different fight choreographers or the fact that early on in the second film, Bruce Wayne confronts Lucius Fox and says, look, you've got to make this suit more manoeuvrable. I've got to be able to turn my neck for a start. You know, it makes backing out of the driveway that much easier. And I think as much yeah. as Nolan has weaved that into the film as a little gag, I actually think there's a lot of reality behind that. And the fact that Certainly in the second and third films, the suit was a lot more figure-hugging. I think in the first one, you had like that long rubber neck piece, which would have been incredibly restrictive. And I would imagine yep. that probably made, you know, that, that raised problems with the fight choreography. Whereas in the second film, they realised there was going to be, you know, more action, more scenes where, you know, certainly towards the end of the film, where he's taken out the thugs in, in, in the, you know, high-rise under construction whether intentional or out of necessity they've actually made a significant change there which i think has has automatically solved that problem of yeah you know the fight scenes they do look far too close up and choppy in the first film yeah there's for the most part way less cutting uh, of, of the fighting in the dark knight and the dark knight rises and i think it benefits so much from it even the first batman appearance in the dark knight uh, when he's fighting in the um in the car parking garage it's just immediate an immediate difference in how Nolan decided to actually approach Batman's fight technique. Yeah, because it, you know, it was the same editor on, on, on the first two films, Lee Smith did, did the editing so it must have just been a conscious choice that even in that first scene, he's in the more uh, rigid suit, it's not been changed at that point, but obviously that scene causes him to have concerns with you know certain elements of that suit he needs a bit more hard protection obviously because he gets bitten by dogs it's sort of weaved into the plot this sort of real world thing of yeah we've got to make this suit a little bit more flexible and i think in opening up the action and seeing it having stood back and with far more convincing fight choreography i think that sort of helps to i think there's no doubt about it that the dark knight a combination of just slightly better editing better choices with the camera setups you know the lighting throughout the film is incredible it just looks epic i i would say hands down and I, I, I do, I would like, you know, like you say, to break out of this thing of pigeonholing everything as being part of a comic book genre. This is, the, the, you know, the best looking film within that genre, wouldn't you, would you say? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. What I'd like to know is, what do you think of the the, the aesthetic of the cities um, as they transition from each film? Because personally, I've actually always had a bit of an issue with it. I know that Nolan and his team consciously made an effort to have the city appear different because they wanted to have it represent a contemporary american city rather than a gotham city as such no you're absolutely right if that's a conscious effort on nolan's part which yeah i've 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 heard the same that it was 
he's trying to establish a very strict continuity and a, and a sense of realism by making a conscious choice to make the city look so different in each of the three films then that's counterproductive to his original idea so in the first yeah. film you've got chicago is standing in as as gotham city for the first part of the film in fact for the majority of the film that works perfectly fine as much as now I can see that some of the CG used to augment the city looks a little bit... It does stand out, and my eye is sort of drawn towards those things, and I can tell which buildings look artificial. But it's not a massive problem at all. It's a tiny nitpick. Then in the second film, he did away with places like the Narrows, things which were done completely artificially, done on set. And as much as a lot of the... you know, It's not all exteriors. He made a conscious effort in the second film, like like when he blows up the hospital, they actually used um, a disused multi-story car park, dressed it up as a hospital, and then blew it up for real. In the second film, he went full on with the realistic look of the film to an extent that at that point then, it felt as if it wasn't actually in Gotham City, although at no point you question the fact that it is Gotham, you know that it's filmed in Chicago for the most part. It, it, does, it does sort of look completely realistic compared to the sort of semi-realism of the first film. But then, in the third film, they film in Manhattan. So all of a sudden, you've got... I'm establishing what Gotham looks like, but now, for reasons which I don't really understand, in the third film, this is very much going to look like New York, which has always been, obviously, the stand-in for Metropolis. So I think from that point of view, he mixes things up unnecessarily there. Although, I still love the way The Dark Knight Rises looks, and I think that it looks almost, to a point, every bit as good as the second film. You are right. The, the, the sort of location aesthetic of the film, it does let itself down with our lack of continuity. Again, that's a minor nitpick I'm willing to overlook. It in no way hampers my enjoyment of the film, but it is something I was consciously aware of um, on recent viewings of it. And it's, again, I would like to, you know, if I could sit down and chat with Nolan, quite frankly, and give him a little bit of constructive criticism, it would be sometimes that I think you need someone there to say, Christopher, I know you've got this idea, maybe you shouldn't run with it. And I think there's a lot of that running throughout his films of late. And I think there's a little bit of an element of illogical thinking there. Yes, it was a conscious decision on his part, but to what end? Yeah, you say they're nitpicks, but I think that uh, they could almost be more than that depending on how much it breaks your immersion. Because <clears throat> I agree that Dark Knight Rises looks as good as The Dark Knight. Yeah. But from the transition from Batman Begins to The Dark Knight, where, and I'm not saying that a sequel needs to reference the first film at all but it doesn't and the fact that it doesn't and the city looks completely different yeah. it almost makes it feel like these are two completely different films that just happen to have the same actors playing the same characters i agree and it's something he could have easily avoided but obviously he hadn't i don't think he perfected his shooting style in the first film um, with regards to you know the sort of creation of the city you've got to, you've got to look back 2005 you know from the, the point of view of comic book films there is an element of, of this being quite revolutionary the fact that we 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 hadn't had a film that was as serious as this I, i'd say the closest comparison would be um stephen norrington's blade from 1998 which it is serious there's no humor to any great degree it i, I actually feel that the, the first blade film is very similar in appearance and tone to these films and, and i think other than that the dark knight trilogy are quite groundbreaking in the fact that they've established this sort of realistic aesthetic for the films but i do think in the first film it was being perfected it hadn't been in the second film it was perfected but then to go and change it in the third film to a different city whether it was down to logistics and they maybe couldn't shoot in chicago i don't know 
But like I say, it's a minor nitpick. I love the way the film looks, but I always think, yeah, this third film, it's not set in Gotham, it's set in Metropolis. Yeah, and I think what you said about how Nolan has, in his later films, he's sort of, he's he's gotten ideas in his head and he's run with them. That can be applied back to um, the fact that Batman Begins was his third studio film coming after Memento and Insomnia. Yeah, it was. So I think that you've got a good point in saying that he was still developing his style. It just so happens that his style tends to come with new radical ideas that almost help to keep him, to keep the process of filmmaking fresh for him is to try new things, which is excellent. But as with anything, sometimes they'll be hit and sometimes they'll be missed. Yeah. He's, I know you love Nolan. A lot of people do, um, you know, films like, you know, this, this trilogy, I, you know, I've got no problem with insomnia. I, I, I know a lot of people see that as one of the lesser Christopher Nolan films. I think it's a great film. I think it's a great remake. You know, Memento is, is just a remarkable you know, first film out of the blocks, a first sort of, not major film, but his first proper Hollywood film. It's only really his his last two films, um, Interstellar and Dunkirk, which have frustrated me. You know, I, I'm not going to go into the reasons why. I, I certainly don't rate Interstellar at all. I know it looks incredible. I know it's incredibly, you know, ambitious film. But I just think those those Nolan illogicalities, those silly decisions that he makes, and I think sometimes he needs someone as a guiding hand over his shoulder to say, eh, Christopher, Maybe this isn't a very, you know, particularly great idea. He's a great director of visuals. I don't know if he's the world's best storyteller because I think he can create interesting characters, but then I think a lot of the scenarios he puts those characters into, they do fall apart on closer scrutiny, as myself and Neil are going to go into when we do the, the audio commentary on The Dark Knight. Because, yeah, God forbid, I know it's an incredible film, which we're really bigging up here, but I have got some criticism, which I am going to be levying at, at that film. doesn't change the fact that it is a masterpiece, but they're things that I think could have easily been solved. Because when it comes down to an element of there's, there's points in the film where the writing lets the film down, I think to a degree that's 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 not excusable. Because as I've said countless times before, good writing costs nothing. And when you're creating a film that's so near perfection to this one, when you're letting it down with silly little plot elements that don't need to be in there or completely illogical or poorly explained, then I think you let yourself down. I think for me... That is my biggest criticism with this film, other than you know the way it looks, which I think for the most part it gets absolutely right, even aside from the fact that, as you quite rightly raise, there is a, a, a difference in continuity between how the three films look. Yeah, I think that that's, it, it harms the trilogy as a whole, but it's very clear that each film was created to exist on their own, to stand alone. And in terms of themes, the themes run right across the three films. So there's, from the perspective of Bruce's development and how The Dark Knight Rises actually brings back a lot of the elements in Batman Begins, it does make it feel like a very cohesive whole. Um, so it's almost like our complaints in regards to that are purely visual. Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the things that I loved most about The Dark Knight Rises, as much as later on I focused maybe too much on the illogical plot points. I loved the fact that it brought Bruce Wayne full circle. Yeah. You know, it brought things back to, like, you, you even have him sort of, I think, in, like, a pain-induced hallucination. He sees Ra's al Ghul again, doesn't he, when he's in that, that pit. Yeah, which I'll actually comment that I, I love how that references Ra's al Ghul's more supernatural immortality in the comics. Yeah. So they've taken his immortality in the source material and they've they've made it work in their more realistic setting. Before, right, again, this is sort of like putting a bit of a full stop on what we're talking about there because I just realised that we're what, well over an hour into this now and 
we've not addressed the thing which is going to be most common in any sort of discussion about the Dark Knight trilogy. Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. Ludicrous. I'm pretty sure what you're going to say, but what are your thoughts on Heath Ledger as the Joker? Well, I mean, what what hasn't been said at this point, that's the thing. It's Having rewatched it the other day, and I even watched a couple of scenes yesterday, it's just groundbreaking. It's No matter how many times I watch his performance, I can never see the actor, because often I'm looking for that. I'm looking if, a, if an actor is in heavy makeup or if they're in a mask or whatever. You want to see that that actor's there. I don't know if you feel the same way, but... I, you can't. You completely believe that he's the Joker in this film. I absolutely feel the same way. I think it's one of the greatest film performances I've ever seen. When I, I was first watching the film back, you know, ten years ago, every time he comes on screen, you just, you know, you could hear a pin drop in that cinema. His his voice, his mannerisms, his little ticks. Unfortunately, it looks like he threw himself so much into that role. He was in a very dark place. He isolated himself in his apartment for a long time beforehand. You know, it, it looks very much like he was taking elements of, of of all of these different you know iterations of not just the Joker, but you know, he, his voice is based on on Tom Waits, the, the, the musician. Who, if you if you look at his uh, interview footage on YouTube, certainly back from the seventies, his voice is, is eerily sort of reminiscent of the Joker. So you can see where he got a lot of the, the influence from. But he took all the, like he even did his own wardrobe. He was able to pick and choose you know, how his makeup was applied and Christopher Nolan, God bless him, gave him complete freedom to do all of this. Even down to the fact that when he's filming that uh, video of him torturing that guy in the Batman suit, Heath Ledger actually shot that himself because there was such a right. such an emphasis on realism that Nolan he said, "Well, look, you've created in your head this incredible character. I will now allow you to film from that character's point of view this sort of ransom video that he would that, that he would film." So it was just it's just remarkable, and it, it's so tragic the fact that. It, you know that role contributed to the loss of his life because can you imagine and this is one of my the things that makes me most sad about the trilogy as a whole is the fact that we weren't able to see that character maybe pop up in a sort of I don't know an advisory role to Batman in the third film because obviously he is he's toying with Batman he doesn't want to kill Batman he wants Batman just to become he wants him to let go of the of these sort of morals that he holds on to so tightly obviously he fails to do that in the second film i would just love to see him just from behind like a you know a padded cell in arkham to see him in the third film interacting with batman and maybe sort of toying with him you know can you imagine how good that would have been yeah i think it coincidentally works in the film and the trilogy's favor that the batman's battle with the joker at the end isn't the end of the film and that it does go and address drama with uh, Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon because that really does bring a close to the entire film it, it makes it feel a bit more complete than had it cut to credits uh, with the Joker getting taken off to jail yeah I think that was the original Nintendo on Nolan's behalf I think um, I think it was was it January 2008 that Heath Ledger passed away I think originally what the plan was that in the third film we were then going to see the... I think it was going to be called, effectively, the, 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 the trial of the Joker with Harvey Dent taking the role, obviously, as, as district attorney as he does. And I think what the plan was, that the Joker character was going to slowly poison the mind of Harvey Dent and sort of manipulate him, much in the way that Hannibal Lecter seems to have this supernatural ability to manipulate people. The Joker was going to do the same thing with Harvey Dent and cause his downfall. Obviously, the death of Heath Ledger meant that they had to put a change of plans there. And I think the idea of seeing the ultimate moral downfall of Harvey Dent at the end of the second film was, 
I think something of a of a last minute decision on Nolan's part, and has then unfortunately sort of changed the course of the direction of the trilogy. Yeah, and if that's the case, I didn't actually know that. But if that's the case, then it probably benefits from the fact that this was never a planned trilogy, and that Nolan only came to the third film much later when he found when he finally found that he had something worth telling. Because had they actually planned it out, it would have completely turned the entire trilogy on its head. Yeah. So, what what do you think, then, Hayden, of the of the the protagonists or or the antagonists in the third film? Obviously, you've got Bane front and center as the main one, and then later on, we've got Talia Al Ghul is introduced, albeit her reveal comes much later on in the film. How do you what do you think of of Bane and you know as a replacement for the Joker? I think that it was the perfect choice in terms of going so dramatically the other way. So um, I remember on, in the lead up to Rises, I was hoping they would actually go with the Riddler because I thought it would be interesting, interesting to see someone challenge Batman intellectually. But then when you think about it a bit more, it may have still resembled the Joker in certain ways, particularly for the a finale of a series. Um, Tom Hardy is brilliant and really embodies uh, that strength and power, not just in his size and physique, but in his eyes, in his voice. Um, I remember there were concerns about his voice uh, when the prologue was shown in IMAX. Yeah. I don't know if you had any issues with it when the film came out. I, I did, Hayden. I, I had a lot of issues with him for a long time. And I don't know, maybe if you're lucky enough on the audio commentary, you might hear Neil and I just dick about and do impressions of the Bane and Joker. Oh, sorry, of the Joker and Bane, <laughs> which we can do. Yeah, I've pretty much got a decent Joker impression down to Pat, and uh, we, we can both do Bane. More as a sort of mockery of him, really. But watching it recently, it was the viewing of the film where I've had, I've had the least problems with Bane and with his voice. And I don't know. I don't know if I was caught on... On a good day, I, I couldn't even say that because I watched them over the course of a few days. Yep. But I think I, I've put to bed a lot of my issues with the third film. I've certainly not really got many issues with Bane anymore. I think you are right. He is the right choice of character. I think if you'd gone with someone like the Riddler for the second film, it would have been more. It would have been too similar to the the character of the Joker, um, someone who is toying with Batman on an intellectual level. Whereas you've got Bane, who is both. You know, Bane knows what he's doing. He's got his shit together. Clearly, he's a guy with a plan. But he's also got that incredible physicality, which Batman finds obviously it's so difficult to go up against. Which obviously then results in, him, as as in that you know that famous issue in the books where he breaks Batman's back. You know, it's a, it's a call back to that. So I think he is the right choice of villain. Um, I, I do understand how people have got a bit of a problem with him. My main issue with it is I, I wish they'd done more of a thing to sort of build up the Talia al Ghul character. It's quite comical if you think about it. He actually, he sleeps with her and then at the end she stabs him and there's that fantastic uh, video that I've seen on YouTube uh, from the guys that do How It Should Have Ended and they do a version where as she stabs him he goes, what the hell are you doing? And as a sort of one-up on her he says, oh well, at least I got to fuck you. <laughs> Which was just... <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but she almost turns into a like a Bond girl um, yeah. in 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 that way. Um, which yeah, it did feel a little unearned that entire character arc, which is a shame because it's quite exciting to think that a character like Talia Al Ghul would actually make it to the big screen. It's just not a character you would think a filmmaker would go to, and it, it would have worked perfectly and works pretty well. I think I don't think it's a disaster. I, I will I will say Hayden her her death scene at the end where she's like sort of crumbled up in the cab of that truck is it, I just think it's comical the way it's played it doesn't come across very well and it does look a little bit ludicrous the one character in the film that it does introduce that I've got absolutely no problem with I thought initially when I heard who was going to play them I, I'd have issues with is is Catwoman and the fact that she's not even referred to as Catwoman 
she's she's called by her name Selina Kyle, but as as Batman quite cleverly or Bruce Wayne cleverly refers to her as a cat burglar, which again yeah. it gives a sort of bit of a you know real world thing as to you know why she would be called Catwoman because she's a cat burglar. But I think Anne Hathaway is fantastic as her, and the fact that ultimately then towards the end of the film she's she becomes the love interest. I, I know people have got issue with it, but I just do like the fact that. Bruce Wayne, who's just had a life of, as much as he's an incredibly priv- privileged, sort of spoilt rich kid, you know, he had his parents taken away from him as a young age, and even though there's that time jump of eight years between the second and third films, which I think was completely unnecessary, I, I wish they hadn't done that, but I think at the end of it, to have things come full circle and to have him have his happy ending, I, I think it's just a great way to wrap it up and to put a full stop on the on the trilogy. I think it works really well because from memory, I don't think it's what any of us really expected. I do think that Selena Kyle's storyline does end a little too neatly, but Anne Hathaway is incredible and I love every scene that she's in, particularly the sequence when she and Batman enter the tunnels in his attempt to go and confront Bane. I think that's a great scene and I think that it, the way it builds and builds and then has her betray him is a really well done entrance into the next sequence, which is equally as good. I think with the absence of music, I think that that's a really smart choice, especially in these films, which are so, so heavily driven by Hans Zimmer, as we mentioned before, to completely cut the music and have Batman just completely powerless against Bane. Uh, it, it's something really quite surprising to see on the screen. Yeah, I think... You mentioned here the lack of music in certain scenes. I think that the sign of a composer who knows their craft is when to use the right music, but also equally importantly is when not to use music and to let just the mood of the scene and, and you know the sound effects and, and, and the dialogue just take front and center. It, it's some, I think it's a lesson that he didn't, you know, he didn't pay attention to that mantra when he did Dunkirk because I think that the music actually gets in the way of the film to a big degree. But I certainly agree it's not the case with these films. So you said you said earlier that uh, am I right in then thinking that you actually hold the Dark Knight Rises in a bit of a of high regard over the first film? It's interesting because I don't think the Dark Knight Rises is a better film than Batman Begins, but I find that it has more substance so that I find that I can actually go back to it more so than I can go back to Batman Begins. As we said earlier, Begins has a very straightforward climax. I guess Rises does also have a similar straightforward climax in that it's just one big chase sequence. But I I find Rises ends in such a satisfying way because I think that the the energy that's, that's put into that final act um, is really strong. So, so your ranking of the films then would be obviously you you put in third place Batman Begins, second place Dark Knight Rises, and obviously Dark Knight Number One, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I flip them around. I I, I can't put aside my issues with the third film. I, I think it's a little bit too bloated in parts. Um, although that you know I've got to say that two hour forty four minute runtime just flies by. It's by far the longest of the three films, but at no point you know am I thinking that big swathes of that film could be cut out. It maybe needed a little bit tighter editing in the script stage but the final film still buzzes along at a, at a cracking pace help i think by the fact they just look so incredible i put yeah i put the third film in third place then batman begins which is not that far off the first film for me i, I would put the dark knight in first position but i think you know if it wasn't for that ending which is a bit of a letdown for the first film that i think you know it, it would almost hold its own against the sequel unfortunately it hasn't got the joker and the Joker just it just elevates the Dark Knight to a level above and beyond most other films. When when one character is so impactful in a film that he just puts everyone else to shame, 
but there's no get there's no getting around it. He is incredible. He is the thing for which I think these films are going to be most remembered. And it's just it's just so sad that Heath Ledger's life ended so so early. Yeah, and I don't think The Dark Knight was written in a way where the protagonist and the antagonist get in each other's way. So I don't think it's actually a problem that the antagonist outshines Batman at all because there's never it never feels like the script is trying to pull us one way or the other. Yeah. It's letting these events unfold quite naturally. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I am in, in the audio commentary, I'm not going to be able to help myself. I am going to have to pick apart some of the more ludicrous plot, plot elements, in particular, the bullet and fingerprint scene, which I just think is some of the laziest, most ridiculous writing that Nolan's done so far. He gets a pass because he does everything else so right. The dialogue, you know, my word, you can you know, go on IMTB, type in The Dark Knight and go down to the, the, the bit where people paste quotes from the film. Every little bit of dialogue that the that the Joker utters is just magnetic. He, yep. you know, it's it's the little ticks and pauses, the way he puts emphasis on certain words, the way he talks. He's got that sort of stiff thing with all the scarring from his mouth. It it's just incredible. It he sounds like he smoked, you know, two hundred cigarettes before you he, he went on on set. It, it it's everything. It's the look. It's the the dialogue. Everything comes together. You know, we did it in a recent episode movie characters. I think the reason I didn't pick the Joker in mine is because I think we're holding off for when we do favourite movie villains. Not to give things away too early, I don't see how I'm not going to be able to pick the Joker in my top three for that category. No, and you're absolutely right that people can write down the quotes and we can quote them to people all day, but it, it's in Heath Ledger's, uh, yeah, his tics, his facial expressions, pauses between words. It's just incredible. There's not really a villain off the top of my head that I can put ahead of him in any film that I've seen. I don't know whether I don't know whether that rings true for you as well. It, well, I no, I you're not going to get any argument from me. I think the closest we've seen to a fully fleshed out villain that has pretty much just been introduced wholesale in the one film, although there is an argument we have seen little bits of him previous is in Avengers Infinity War earlier this year when we saw Thanos the fact that I think to the surprise of a lot of people Instead of just being a generic, big, bad, sort of sneering villain, there was a hell of a lot more depth to Thanos than people were expecting, especially for a character that is pretty much, for the most part, CGI enhanced. He is a CG creation, albeit with you know, predominantly motion capture, so a lot of Josh Brolin's performance comes through. But other than Thanos, um, in recent sort of film memory, there have been very few antagonists or villains that can hold a torch to the Joker. Absolutely right. And, and speaking of the Joker, Hayden... Obviously, one of the best things that Nolan does is he doesn't give us any hint of backstory to the Joker. For me personally, I think that's great because you can fill in your own backstory as to where he's come from. Have you ever thought of that from those from that perspective and, and maybe where you think he actually comes from and how he's ended up as completely fucked up as he is? I don't even think about it in terms of the fact that I don't think it's worth thinking about. I think it works perfectly completely unknown because i think that that works in the favor of the character um you've got comics that explore that to an extent but the killing joke which you may have read is a great comic but it's definitely aged i think in terms of some of the controversial things that it does and as as well made as it is i still don't think that giving the joker a backstory no. does the and character I, again anything. i fully agree with you and you are right it hasn't aged well there from the point of view of now we've got in the films this established sort of thing and you know even t to the credit of 
obviously the subsequent appearance of the Joker that we've seen in the DCEU in Suicide Squad. They don't give him a backstory as such either. And I think, again, you're, you're never going to be able to tell a story as to the Joker's origin that's going to be anywhere near as interesting as what you could leave to your imagination because you're given free sort of thinking to completely come up with whatever story you want to. I've got my own version as the way I think he comes from because you've got to look at the character. He's got this this thing of he's an agent of chaos, he's a guy without a plan, he's like a dog chasing cars. That's complete bullshit. He is, as much as he is an agent of chaos and is creating chaos, every single thing that the Joker does is meticulously planned out to a point where no one is really one step ahead of him. No, you could never pull off the things that he pulls off without very detailed planning. So from that point of view, I think he is just like the perfect conundrum. He is a contradiction and... He it just gives the character so much depth without actually filling in specific details. And I think, it's, again, it's part and parcel of what makes him just one of the all-time great movie characters. So obviously we've um, we, we've we've given a little bit of a, a rundown of the films there and, and our ranking of them. How do you see that? Obviously, this is we're now six years on from the last film. That you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe has sort of blown up into an entity unlike anything else we've ever seen. And I, as much as I don't want to give a comparison between these two sets of films because I do think they are quite a bit different, what do you think is the, is the sort of mark that the Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy has left on modern cinema? I think that we're going to figure out if it's truly as timeless as it actually feels as time goes on. I think yes, it's been ten years since the Dark Knight, but the trilogy as a whole feels like it's a piece of mythology. It feels like a very complete detailing of a man superhero or not that goes through a very specific journey and i think that that's very memorable and i think that it's almost very uncommon today you look at marvel and marvel is doing incredible things but they're completely different to what the dark knight trilogy did since the dark knight trilogy i don't think that it, there has been another franchise that has brought an end so um completely to a single character other than the recent apes trilogy yeah i you know i, I agree it's i think what you're trying to get out here hayden is it right that this trilogy feels closed off and self-contained compared to things like the mcu where at the moment character arcs are ongoing and there's there's definitely an open-ended feel if now, in the subsequent forthcoming second part of this Infinity War saga, certain characters meet their ultimate final doom, say, for example, if they do kill off someone like Captain America, which I've said on past episodes I want them to do. He's, he's my favourite character. He's my, my favourite uh, character in the MCU. The MCU is my favourite franchise. He's gone from being a character I wasn't particularly... F- you know, I, did, I had no particular fondness of to one who, over the course of the films, has grown into one that I think is, yeah, you know, Cap is my favourite character from these films, but I think if they don't kill him off, they're going to do his character a disservice. It would be the perfect end for this this sort of patriotic superhero to meet a martyr's end. And I, I'm hoping, above all hope, that Kevin Feige, you know, that's the ultimate plan he's got for him. But you know, that that's, involves killing the character off, putting a final note on it, giving him a heroic death. I love the way that it sort of pulls the rug from under you and thinks that, no, Batman has always said that he's the hero Gotham needs, not the one that Gotham wants. And then to ultimately sacrifice himself was a bold move. But I didn't then feel cheated with the fact that we actually see that he survived, whether he ejected or not. Or I think there's also a belief that all of that might be a dream and he did actually die. And that's just Alfred having a fantasy about what he could have gone on to, you know, a life he could have gone on to leave. 
when you talk about Captain America, I think that I agree that he should die in the next film. And I, fi- I found that he had nothing to add to Infinity War. Agreed, and yeah. I'm sure you've heard that. No, we, we, we yeah. even said in the Infinity War episode, Cap felt a little bit like a fifth wheel as much as he was crucial to, you know, and we do come up with quite a wild theory as to the fact that there's a possibility that at some point, if they're going to go down the, the line of the scroll infiltration of Earth, that this Captain America might actually be not human. Um, completely wild theory which we do try and go some ways to explain it but yeah i you know mm-hmm. I, I think yeah they, he didn't feel like an integral part of infinity war like maybe he should have but i th- I'm, I'm also thinking that a part of that is going to be intentional because it will put a lot of viewers then into a false sense of security that come the next film when maybe he is front and center and he does actually meet his end that might actually help to make that more impactful but I think that's where the Dark Knight trilogy differs. Not to say that it's superior, but there's it's a completely closed off story. There's no intention of telling a story in which it's, you know, the next episode is the next villain for Batman to take on or the next crime for him to thwart. There's none of that. I'm not saying that that's what Marvel does. However, I am saying that the Captain America trilogy is brilliant, but it's not closed off. It, it throws Captain America in different films and ultimately it runs the risk of him feeling like a fifth wheel as you say in that sense i think that the dark knight trilogy resembles trilogies from older generations as opposed to today's films where there is such an emphasis on expanded universes for example i would love for the current wonder woman series to be its own self-contained thing i think that wonder woman's presence in batman v superman and justice league does the character no favors And I think that she's done so well in the first Wonder Woman film that I wish that it was its own self-contained story. I agree. I, I felt she did need to be introduced in Batman vs. Superman. I thought she was absolutely fantastic in Wonder Woman. You know, as we've discussed, I'm not a big... You know, I, I'm not overly critical towards Justice League. It's unfortunate that it looks like quite a fractured, fragmented film with two different directors being responsible for different parts of the film. The main thing there that I'm trying to get at is the fact that I... I, I love the Wonder Woman character both in Wonder Woman and also in Justice League and I, I just love Gal Gadot and you know I'm really looking forward now to obviously we've seen early shots of, of this sort of 80s set second Wonder Woman film and I'm really intrigued to see where they're going to go with that one because obviously this is way before your time but you know I do have vague memories of the of the late 70s Linda Carter Wonder Woman show which was very camp and kitsch and, and sort of you know almost like a, a, a progression of the of 60s Batman. But if we're going to go into sort of gaudy 80s fashion and all that sort of thing and have Wonder Woman plop right into that, I th- just think it's going, to be, it's going to be intriguing and I'm really looking forward to where they're going to go with it. I think Patty Jenkins as a director is incredibly talented. And then when she's got acting talent like Gal Gadot, who as much as you, I thought she was quite wooden to say the least in Batman vs Superman, I felt she really came into her own in Wonder Woman. And I am really looking forward to seeing where they're going. And I think she is definitely the sort of hottest property the DC have got on their slate right now. So if Warner Brothers convinced Christopher Nolan not to come back for more Batman, but to leave room for an expanded universe to have extended off of Rises, would you have been for that or against it? I would have been definitely for it because I, I do actually think that Christian Bale's iteration of Bruce Wayne is is my favourite iteration of the character. He sometimes lets himself down as Batman with the fact that he has to put this stupid voice on all the time, even when he's speaking to someone like um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in the third film. He's already established that he knows his dual identity. Why is he still talking to them in, in this gravelly sort of um, voice? It makes no sense. But yeah, I I think I would have liked to have seen scope for it to sort of expand beyond that. But like you say then, it is a perfectly self-contained trilogy. And as much as I have said that 
Captain America trilogy might be my favourite trilogy, I'm going to contradict myself now and say that to get the full story of Captain America, you also have to watch the, you know, the Avengers films that fit in between. So three films really become six films, in which case it is exactly, no, it's yeah. no longer a, a superhero trilogy, in which case, by default then, I think I probably have to say that the Dark Knight trilogy would, would, would earn the title of, of best superhero trilogy. It'd be easier to compare the Dark Knight trilogy to Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy than it would be to any of the modern Marvel iterations. Absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right there. In which case, it's going to win over Raimi's trilogy. I know the Steve Amos probably wouldn't agree, simply because the, the you know the I think that the third Dark Knight film holds up far better than the third Spider-Man film. Yeah, I think there's some interesting comparisons between um, particularly Batman Begins and the first Spider-Man, not to get too heavily into it, but it is interesting that they are quite similar in structure, both trilogies, that is. Yeah, I agree. The, I know obviously you hold the third film in slightly higher regard than, than, than the first Batman film, but I think that the general consensus with these trilogies is that the first one is an incredibly strong opening. The second one then is the peak of the trilogy, and then unfortunately, for various reasons, the third film isn't as good. So yeah, I think they, there are some parallels there. You know, I, I do. I am really eager to go back and, and rewatch the, um, the 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 Raimi Spider-Man trilogy as we've discussed. You know, whether or not we'll do a future episode on it, I'm not sure. And um, whether there's going to be a relevance to do that. And to be honest with you, crikey, how many how many episodes now have we done which are dedicated either to Star Wars or comic book films? You know, I think <laughs> people are going to be thinking, oh shit, film eighty nine and talking about comic book films and Star Wars again. Change the t- you know change the record. We you know. Unfortunately, it just so happens that timing. We've had a lot of comic book films that we, we've had to cover. We're going to have to do an Ant-Man and the Wasp episode soon. So I do apologise, guys and girls. You're going to have to listen to us talking on about Marvel films again. But you've got the 10th anniversary of The Dark Knight looming um, in mid-July. So we, we, we've had to cover it here. You know, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed re-watching these films again. I, uh, it, it's incredible because I almost thought, I thought, right, are you going to be an overly critical cynic and tear these films apart even more than you did before? And I didn't. I actually found myself enjoying them more than I did, so I'm I'm so glad you suggested um, doing a rewatch of these films because I've I've had I've got a renewed love for them, and you know that's why I'm 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 not against actually heralding these as as the, the you know the greatest comic book trilogy. I don't think that the Dark Knight is worthy of its place as number four on the IMDb top two hundred and fifty because I can probably off the top of my head name twenty better films. But I'm not going to argue too much with it because it is a remarkable film. And I understand that certainly for a younger generation, it is going to be just the most impactful, groundbreaking, jaw-dropping thing they've ever seen. So I'm not going to, you know, deny it, it, its lofty status. I just don't agree that it is, you know, the fourth best film ever made. Yeah, The Dark Knight is it's epically told, and I think that the weight that the drama is given really helps people to see it in such high regard, myself included. Um, and it's easy to forget things like uh, Batman and Rachel falling off the building, and then the Joker apparently just leaving the party upstairs uh, to go home to bed. But people are are willing to overlook little things like that because of how well the film is made. You know, I, I'd never thought of that before, but yeah, they are, you've got to be careful with how much we nitpick these films. Now, ultimately, what, what I, I try and do is, well, let's look at the overall positives as to what this film has brought to, you know, the landscape of the comic book film and, and, and film in general. I think credit to Nolan for, for me, and you know, unless he pulls something out of the bag and, and, and releases some new film or series of films which are just even more earth-shattering and groundbreaking, 
I think for the moment these represent his best films. Um, I, I know in, um, Inception is held in in very high regard by a lot of people, but that's just one standalone film. I think you know for the impact this has left on modern cinema, the Dark Knight trilogy is something for which you know, he, he rightly deserves all the credit he gets. Yeah, and I can't imagine that Nolan will ever go back to another series. I I just have the feeling that he will stick to stand uh, standalone films and from yeah, now on. For the most part, I think because he's peaked so so much with this sort of series of films I, I hope that he doesn't in a way i hope he doesn't try one day to sort of recreate what he's done here if he does i don't know i would maybe like to see him try something completely different if it's an adaptation of an existing you know story from elsewhere be it a book or a graphic novel i don't know but you know i just want to see it done in a completely different format and template maybe a western or something like that i, I don't want to ever see him go back and try his hand at comic book films again because I think this was a case of lightning in a bottle and certainly with that most of the first film and you know the second film he he, he hit his stride and I, I just think he should leave it at that now he's, he's shown that he can do comic book films of his own particular style and I don't want to see him go back to the genre now because I just I've got that nagging doubt that he can ever recreate this sort of magic again no I completely agree and I often actually view his Dark Knight work separately to his quote-unquote original work in that it feels, when you look at Memento, The Prestige, Inception, they all have those similarities, those traits that Nolan's films seem to always have, Uh, whereas in the Dark Knight trilogy, obviously, it's an adaptation. Those are mostly missing. And yeah, I completely agree that I don't even think he would want to go back to comic books. I mean, he didn't even know that Batman didn't kill before he, uh, when he signed on to do Batman Begins. So his knowledge of comic books isn't great and I don't see anyone convincing him to go back to it. Yeah, and I think, you know, like I said, nor should he. He's done all he needs to do in this genre now and I, I don't really want to see anything else from him. Although, if someone ever did tempt him back, I'd certainly be intrigued to see, depending on your standpoint, the Bruce Wayne character survived. Uh, you know selena kyle survived there's a lot more villains left in that batman's rogues gallery for him to put his realistic spin on i think there's definitely a part of me that would be interested in seeing where he goes with it but i think yeah like you say it's a it's a beautifully self-contained story arc for bruce wayne that wraps itself up nicely i think let's just leave it at that now and move on and you know i don't think he's like you say i don't think he ever will go back to it so you know it's, it's it's a bit of a moot point but yeah, I think the, these films are just bordering on a self-contained perfect trilogy. So, Hayden, thank you very much for for suggesting this. It, you know, I'm I'm sorry that we couldn't get you on earlier, and you know, I look forward to getting you back on with the rest of the lads. Obviously, recording times are an issue. Bearing in mind you are living in the future, what what, what is it like there, Hayden? <laughs> I've got to ask. Are we all wearing like silver tracksuits and flying around in in flying cars and like eating little pills, which uh, you've got like one big self-contained meal, or is it just you know nothing to report in the future? Just thinking about Back to the Future too. So we're all wearing shoes that lace themselves up for Ooh. us. Our jackets um, shrink shrink to our size. Cool. So Back Back to the Future 2 actually got it right then? Yes. Wow, amazing. Oh, so obviously you, you can't say too much because you could potentially affect the timeline. But, you know, thank you very much for sharing that, that message from the future. <laughs> this, this joke <laughs> is going to have legs. We're never going to stop with it. And I'm sorry about that. But, you know, it could be worse. Okay, Hayden, where can, where can people reach you if they'd like to chat to you on social media? So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Hayden Sporrell or all my writing you can find at Film89. On Facebook, I'm also at Hayden Sporrell. So yeah, uh, follow me and you can check out the comic and uh, I'll also be sharing all my writing for the website. 
which yeah carry on doing it mate you're a fantastic writer and you know it's just a, a joy to read your stuff it's been fantastic chatting to you today and i can't wait to get you back on so guys, I uh, hope, hope you've enjoyed this. This is part one where we've uh, Hayden and I have discussed the trilogy. Part two will, um, if all goes to plan, be an audio commentary with myself and Neil Gaskin sitting down and going through a whole two and a half hours of The Dark Knight. So please, if you're a DC Comics fan, if you're a superhero comic fan, please stick around for that next episode. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can follow us all, like Hayden said, at Film89UK. Please give us a like, give us a subscribe if you haven't already. More importantly, recommend us to a friend and get those iTunes reviews in. Guys, I can't stress how important it is. I'm not going to release any figures just yet, but suffice to say, I'm extremely pleased. We're all extremely pleased with how well the podcast is doing. That's thanks to you guys listening to us, recommending us to friends. And thank you very much all for your, your contributions with listeners' questions, with suggestions for future episodes, of which countless people suggested the dark knight as an audio commentary which is why we're giving it to you next episode and please just stick with us all guys we're really enjoying what we're doing and you're just all awesome so stay safe and most importantly stay classy